Truthspresso, episode 225. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truthspresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, and welcome to Truthspresso. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, and I have with me once again my sweet and beautiful co-host and wife, Chelsea. Thank you, sweetheart, for doing this with me once again. Yes, thanks for including me on this journey of a new episode series. Oh, yes. We are going to start a new series, and there's a reason we're going to start this series. You've probably heard about the recent, what is called the Asbury Revival at Asbury University in Kentucky, a little Methodist university there, and it's definitely making the news, and there's lots of support and lots of criticism. And so, you know, it remains to be seen when the dust settles with what's going on there, whether we could truly call it a revival or not in kind of a historical sense, if you will. (laughs) And so rather than just talk about the Asbury revivals right now, Chelsea and I are going to start a series on revivals. Particularly, we are going to look at revivals in American history. So we're going to dive deep into the history of the various revivals, like the Great Awakening, the first, the second, the third. And I know some people are calling this, the Asbury Revival, part of the fourth Great Awakening. So we shall see. And as we go through each of the revivals, we're going to look at the distinctive back Backgrounds, like what was going on at the time that demonstrated that a revival was needed, and then what were the characteristics of the revival in particular. We'll see, you know, what we might consider the good and possibly the not so good in possibly all of the revivals over time. And so to start off on this series of revivals, I want to read a a few verses in scripture kind of to set the tone, and then we're going to ask the question, just what is a revival? So for talking about revivals, we have Psalm 85, verses 6 through 8, which says, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. So I think that passage is a great passage for describing a revival. And so, sweetheart, you want to answer the question, just what is a revival? Is there a definition for a revival? (laughs) Sure. So one of my favorite dictionaries is the 1828 Webster Dictionary. Yeah, that's the best. You just can't improve on that. And I know (laughs) definitely now Webster has not improved on that dictionary right now, but... (laughs) 
Um, so, yes, I looked through that to find the definition of revival. And there were a few different definitions in there. So I'll just mention a couple. So the one that we're talking about in these different great awakening situations and stuff, the definition is, quote, renewed and more active attention to religion, an awakening of men to their spiritual concerns. And another definition that I thought was kind of interesting especially when you think about how the Holy Spirit works in our heart and it changes us. Like we were dead in our sins. And now when we accept Christ, we're made alive again. So I kind of like this definition where uh, it says, quote, return, recall, or recovery to life from death or apparent death as the revival of a drowned person, (laughs) end quote. Isn't that just kind of a cool thing to think about? Like, Okay, revival is your spirit is dead because you're in sin and you're like apart from God. And then you ask Christ to save you and then you're made alive. And now you're like that life inside of you. You're more willing to go out and do things and make change. And there's kind of a spark or a fire that's stirred up inside of you when that happens. And Yeah, that imagery there of return of life to a drowned person. So... Obviously, it's the idea of someone who's just kind of helpless or immobile or something, and then you give life, and then what does that do to such a person? You know, gives them a new look at life. And so, uh, yes, a revival in the religious or the Christian sense would be to turn someone from kind of like the walking dead, I guess, complacency to taking the faith more seriously. So I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and he's certainly experienced revivals during his life in the mid-19th century. So from his periodical, The Sword and the Trowel, this is the December 1866 edition, he says, A true revival is to be looked for in the Church of God. Only in the river of gracious life can the pearl of revival be found. It has been said that a revival must begin with God's people. This is very true, but it is not all the truth, for the revival itself must end as well as begin there. The results of the revival will extend to the outside world, but the revival, strictly speaking, must be within the circle of life and must therefore essentially be enjoyed by the possessors of vital godliness and by them only. Is not this quite a different view of revival from that which is common in society, but is it not manifestly the correct one? <laughs> so I think that's a pretty insightful view from the Prince of Preachers there. So revival, strictly speaking, is from within the church, at least the visible church in some form. So it's kind of like, okay, there is in some sense the people of God, but the people of God, maybe some who are associated with the church are unregenerate, or there are people who are regenerate, but they've become 
complacent. And so those who have life, this life is sparked anew and afresh. And also in this uh, article, he mentions about the illustration of throwing a rock in a pond and seeing the ripples go out. And like, this is how it affects the outside world. They're going to see, they're going to notice, and they might even participate it to some extent. And the church grows as new converts are made. But the main point of a revival is the people of God experiencing renewed focus on the faith and renewed seriousness of their faith. I think it's neat, too, that you can see different occasions of revival in the Bible, too. Like You have the example in Acts, too where the church is being revived, like people are coming to know Christ and then they're on fire and wanting to go out and share this good news. And so Acts two sixteen through 18, it shows us where God uses his spirit to work in the hearts and minds of men. So it says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So I think it's cool. I mean, God, he sent his Holy Spirit to stir, awaken, like, um, bring about goodness and like you said kind of that renewed fire (laughs) in christians and that's kind of what you see in the acts two here is just the church like and the people getting stirred into and go and do things yeah so one of the characteristics of revival is that it will involve emotional responses but that's not all there is to revival so lest we be confused because there are things that can be termed revivals where it's just kind of a an emotional social experience but that emotion is connected to things like what do we see here in acts 2 we see the word of god peter preaches he quotes from the word of god and then you have the holy spirit of god working applying the word of god in the hearts of people and so the um, these Israelites here, they hear the word of God preached. They see the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and what happens is, you know, we get down in that passage. It says they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter, what shall we do? <laughs> you know, the, there, there's a conviction of sin. And then Peter says, repent. So there's conviction of sin and repentance. And those are characteristics of revival. So, yes, with this model, we see the word of God preached. We see the Holy Spirit convicting people of sin. So there's a renewed emphasis. There's a renewed recognition on the effects of sin in one's own life. So then there's an inner reflection in their heart and the need for repentance. So I think it's also good to be aware of when you see some of these different like revivals or different situations where you hear about just these masses of people coming to Christ or things like that, like that we shouldn't be necessarily overly critical, but we also shouldn't be 
just 100% supportive of those things without taking a good look at some like foundational things. Because even in God's word, it says that we need to be careful because there's false prophets that are going to come out. Yeah. And how do we decipher between is this the work of the Holy Spirit moving in these people or is it false prophets coming <laughs> and like creating some mass gathering of people? <laughs> but thankfully, God's word does give us an answer. So in Matthew 7 verse 15 through 20, Jesus basically explains that we can see true repentance by their fruits. So it says, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? So just, yeah, keeping that in mind as we go through some of the history and also the current news here that we don't want to just blindly accept things that are happening, but we want to, again, look back at God's word and see, okay, what are some of the principles we can gather from this and how do they tell us um, to look at these scenarios? Well said, sweetheart. And like one of the purpose of why we're doing this series the way we are doing is that so that we can study and reflect and really understand just what a revival is given enough time studying all the revivals through history and not just, you know, as you said, pass judgment on what's currently going on in Asbury and at the same time not just reflexively say, hey, people are stirred up. This is true revival. Everyone involved is just having their come to Jesus moment. You know, like we have to be cautiously optimistic step back, observe over time, you know, study and evaluate. And and so possibly by the time we go through the series on revivals, as we've looked at it, you know, who knows by then we'll see, maybe the dust will have settled. Then we can take a look at the fruits of the Asbury revival. And by that time, maybe we'll have more information and more criteria with which to evaluate it and see you know look at the good look at the bad and and maybe we can evaluate and we can declare yeah this was a true revival or not so you know stay tuned keep uh, listening to the series and then you know we'll see once we get we'll do an episode on or two or so we'll just have to play it by ear and see how it goes but we'll see you know, once we get to the Asbury revivals, then we will be able to see how it goes and stands the test of what is a revival. How is your flame of truth, Christian? Is it burning bright? Hi, I'm Rebecca Bershwinger, creator and host of One Little Candle, a weekly podcast dedicated to encouraging, empowering, and equipping believers to be the light that God has called us to be, so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. So join me and light your own little corner of the world. You can listen to One Little Candle on all major podcast platforms or at christianpodcastcommunity.org. So now we are going to, for this episode, get into the first great awakening. 
And to start off with, we're going to look at the background to what really caused the first Great Awakening. Why was it necessary? And every revival is going to have its background, its specific needs, its specific scenario. So the reasons for revival in each scenario could be different. You know, there's different demographics, there's different problems in each case. But the result of, re- of every revival should be the same, which is that people embrace conviction. They, they're convicted over sin, they're brought out of complacency, and they have a deeper individual need for taking their faith seriously. And so, the first Great Awakening happens in the 18th century, so in the 1700s, And the first Great Awakening was kind of in the early to mid-1700s. So around the 1730s, what we have here is a time frame of about 100 years after the pilgrims settled in the colonies. Think of like uh, Plymouth in 1620 and so on. Remember that date. So we're looking at about 100 years later. So what has happened in that 100 years time? You had people moving from England to these colonies. And these are all people who moved because they wanted freedom of worship. They're people who took their faith seriously. They did not want to be complacent in the Church of England and its kind of sacramental but seemingly dead worship, mere formalism by this time. They wanted to worship God freely and seriously, so they moved to the colonies, and then with their kind of more Presbyterian-like covenantal outlook in church governance and structure, people who were deemed regenerate, you know, that they were truly saved, they would form churches, they would covenant together, they would all sign this covenant to start a church. But after a hundred years, you have these people having children, and then children having children, and the economy, the society grew, and you no longer just had the original covenanters. (laughs) You had to deal with, well, now that the church has grown, now that society has grown, how do we keep the fervor going? How do we keep people serious about the church, and especially with the theology of how the church was to be propagated. So cultural interest in propagating Christianity as such kind of evangelizing was waning a hundred years later and enlightenment out of Europe was also spreading to the colonies and that wasn't helping. Sure, there were positives of the Enlightenment, like reason. You know, the Enlightenment focused on reason, and that could be good or bad, because some people would use reason to shed themselves from Christianity as if it were mere superstition. But then there were Christians who used reason from the Enlightenment to discover more of God's creation and how creation worked. So, But Enlightenment thinking with rationalism wasn't helping the devotion of the church. And when we look at this first Great Awakening, it seems to be mostly in the northern, the New England, and particularly the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So Massachusetts seemed to be the exemplar 
of congregationalist churches, and these congregationalist churches were the primary source of what would be controversies and disagreements, but the resolutions of these controversies would ultimately lead to the cause for the Great Awakening. So I mentioned congregationalist churches. Just what was a congregationalist church? Well, I think you had the Church of England, the Anglican churches, and their very top-down kind of structure, like from the king of England on down. Bishops were loyal to the king. The Presbyterian churches were a little less rigid in structure in that, but they had a bit of independence, but also more of a hierarchical polity. The Congregationalist churches were even less structured than that, and especially as you have pilgrims moving to the United States, they're not necessarily going to have presbyters, you know, from Europe to manage the churches, and they didn't want that. So to form churches from the ground up, you had a congregationalist structure. It was the congregation that would determine the bishops, the ministers, the pastors of the churches. Now, Congregationalist churches in doctrine, they held to some doctrine that would be considered Presbyterian, such as infant baptism. So, the infant children of believers would be baptized, but their structure of church governance, their church polity, their ecclesiology seemed more like Baptist. And so, Congregationalist churches seem to be somewhat in between a Baptist and a Presbyterian church in their theology and in their ecclesiology there. So, Congregationalist churches could form from members who were considered regenerate and had covenanted with each other to start the church. And then also, Congregationalist churches had a horizontal-like open-mindedness that they could associate with, possibly have ministers participate in other Congregationalist churches that were like-minded. Now, a covenanted visible church, so those who actually attended or participated in a congregationalist church, in covenant here, they considered this a continuation of God's covenant with Abraham. So, God gave the covenant of Abraham, of circumcision for Israel. These churches would kind of look at their own local church almost like a mini-Israel in a way. (laughs) So in the Old Covenant, members were officially recognized by way of circumcision. A Congregationalist church would consider that the church, the visible church itself, was in covenant with God. And the sign and seal of the covenant was baptism, and that was to be given to infant children who were members of the covenant. So, infant baptism was also the vehicle by which the church covenant continued generationally. But unlike some maybe Presbyterian churches, like maybe the more liberal Presbyterian churches, most Congregationalist churches would only consider those who were deemed regenerate or saved as fully covenanted members. So that's the term that they would use. Are you a fully covenanted member? So, fully covenanted members were those who demonstrated a zeal for the faith 
they outwardly looked, acted, and talked as Christians, and they actually made a confession of faith. So the elders would maybe catechize them, question them. They would answer sufficiently to say, here's my confession. I can write it out. I can demonstrate it. I can tell you who Jesus is, what he did for me, and agree with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and so on. So these were the real deal people, and then they had clout in the church. So those who were covenanted members, at least those who were considered regenerate or truly regenerate, would be called the invisible church. But as you have the outward appearance, people who attended church, some may not have been regenerate, some being the children of regenerate members who still were not evaluated yet as regenerate. They had yet to prove that. All of that together would be considered the visible church. Now, a Congregationalist church would always strive, at least early on, to try to make the visible church align as closely as possible with the invisible church. I think it was interesting reading through some of the history of these early churches and how they were structured to where it was almost like, okay, if you're a member of that church, that that was okay. That was good enough. (laughs) That's kind of where you see the people kind of become complacent, like you were mentioning earlier. It's like, okay, I go to church every Sunday, so that's good. But then they're not like reading their Bibles, maybe, or teaching their children how to grow and mature in God's word. And there's just this kind of status quo. Hmm. And I think that that's where you see that contrast of the revival coming in and people realizing, okay, it's not about this membership, this works of going to church, making my presence seen at church there. But it's this inward, this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And don't we see that today? Oh, yeah. As we look at this, we will see reflections of today because that for different cultures and times, there's going to be distinctives to that particular culture. But we're always going to see something that, yep, we can relate to that. Definitely. We could relate to the problem, at least in some sense, and we can relate to the solution (laughs) for sure. So, yes, there's problems with, as you said, so we are complacent formalism, nominalism, that kind of thing, or people kind of participating in church just via being associated with a family member and stuff. And so just kind of being organically part of the church, but not, say, truly regenerate or something like that. And I mean, that's always going to be a problem throughout time, throughout the church age, you know, is to, yes, even if we don't agree with the I mean, we're not Presbyterian or Congregationalist in this sense, even though probably Baptists would relate more to Congregationalist than Presbyterian and stuff. There's some elements of similarity as far as, you know, recognizing that there's the need for members to be regenerate and demonstrate it in some way. Can we see that, as Jesus says, the tree brings forth fruit? You can see them by their fruits and stuff. There's always the desire to make sure that everyone who's a member, you can see that they're truly saved, you know, and stuff like that. And there's always that desire. There's always that purpose of trying to make the visible church look more like the invisible church. 
and we'll <laughs> we will see as some people try to solve the problems that arise they can even introduce new problems because we have to see like what is the solution we see the solution ultimately is the revival rather than kind of a political solution <laughs> that that ends up happening so this is going to be a really weird illustration, <laughs> but I just cannot get it out of my head. <laughs> like, for some reason, it just reminds me of the new year. Each year, people have a resolution to go to the gym. <laughs> so they buy a membership to go to the gym. And at first, they're on fire. They're like, yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to go do this. And then pretty soon, by February, then it's like, oh, okay, maybe I'll go once a week. Okay, well, at least I still have my membership card for the gym. Like, that guarantees like that. I was trying to make it a priority, and it just seems like that's how we act with the church sometimes, too, is like, or even with our relationship with Christ. We We are saved. We have our membership with Christ, but are we actively trying to go and work out? Are we actively mm-hmm. participating? Are we actively showing that there's fruit that's being produced? Like we can't just sit around and say, well, at least I have my membership card. Like <laughs> yeah. that's not going to do you any good. And how are others going to know about Christ? And mm. Yeah. yeah. So sorry about that weird illustration. It just kind of stuck in my head like that. <laughs> well, that does kind of bring out the point that a revival, a true revival, will kind of demonstrate that Christianity must be an inward thing that results in outward evidence. So, you know, someone who's truly regenerate will then demonstrate it. You will see it, you know, by how they live. And so, you know, someone can't just hide the candle under the bushel. Like it can't just be internal and hidden, you know, because then it's like, okay, do you really have it inside? If it's hidden, then it also can't just merely be an outward conformity or an outward formalism either. That's what revival sparks is the fact that you have to make the inside right. You know, as Jesus talked about the Pharisees cleaning the outside of the cup and the platter, but the inside is filthy. Like it's got to be clean inside and then cleansed outside. As we look at the congregational church problem, we also notice that well-intentioned, of course, you know, I'm not going to knock them for this as we'd expect, as you have religious people, pilgrims moving from England to Massachusetts, and these people who are determined to have the truth of their faith, they want to live it out together, they want to worship together. They covenant together with a church, and their society together is, in effect, the government. And so you have town affairs essentially being determined by the bishops or the ministers of the churches. And so as a kind of society grows out, as more people are added, population is increasing and forming towns, the government of the town is managed by basically the elders of churches. And so you have this theocratic system there in in the early colonies. 
So the state and town governments, such as in the Massachusetts Bay Colony here, were tied to the church leaders. Only those who were considered full church members could vote in the local affairs. And, of course, full members, as we said, were those whom the ministers evaluated as regenerate, who covenanted with the church and could demonstrate that they were living out their faith visibly. So, unlike the theocracies that were in Europe, they were more like top-down theocracies, but the Massachusetts Bay Colony was kind of a form of theocracy from the bottom up through congregational churches. Now, as we get to the fact that religious fervor was waning, enlightenment was kind of making the church dead, and church attendance, or rather church membership in particular, people who would be deemed or evaluated as regenerate, those on the roster were kind of reducing So that would also result in lesser church attendance. And so the outlook seemed to be that Christianity itself was fading away. It was waning. And remember, he said that the way the church, the Congregationalist Church, like Presbyterian churches, would propagate the church would be organically through having children and infant baptism and stuff. So it's kind of like you're passed down the faith by baptizing your infants. And when they grow up, you expect the children then to become fully covenanted members, demonstrate that they're regenerate, covenant with the church when they become young adults, and then repeat that with their children. Now, we get to some relevant names. In trying to solve this problem through covenant, through a kind of polity, a politics, (laughs) so a political solution, we have Richard Mather, who was a pastor in Boston, and he had migrated from England. So naturally, anyone who was from England, you know, you were either a Catholic or you were an Anglican, you know, the official Church of England, the Anglican Church. So Richard Mather was originally an Anglican. While he was in England, he kind of ran afoul of the official practices of the Church of England. He rejected many of the outward formal elements because he considered it like a kind of a dead formalism, like pomp, high church, kind of flashy, but no true heart there. You know, like, are these people even regenerate? They're just going through the motions, and there's more emphasis on the liturgy and the outward sacramentalism, but not a true regeneracy. And then the ministers. The, the bishops, the clergy there, okay, they would wear their fancy white robes and stuff, but were they truly Christians? You know, you had that problem with the formality of the high Anglican church. So Richard Mather preached as an Anglican for 15 years, but he was somehow getting away with preaching for 15 years without wearing the official garb of (laughs) Anglican ministers, particularly the surplice, which was kind of this fancy white tunic. So he preached kind of wearing less costly clothes, you know, so not street clothes, but less flashy clothes there. 
Because of this, he was first removed from his position as a pastor of the church there, but he continued to preach anyway as he found opportunities. So then he was pulled into court later on for this, and eventually he got fed up with having to fight against the Anglican Church, so he moved to Boston so he could preach his convictions more freely there. So while Pastor Mather was in the Congregationalist churches in Boston, you know, he moved there because he wanted to preach his convictions. He also noticed that although the church structure there was more to his liking, he saw a decline in spirituality and in church membership there too. So he thought that perhaps the problem was because of the way the church was determining membership. Like, okay, membership is declining, attendance is declining, and the overall spiritual condition is also declining. So how to improve that? Well, he thought that, okay, the requirement that children of fully covenanted members expecting that they have to become themselves fully covenanted members before they're considered members of the church was not doctrinally correct. So he wrote a disputation concerning church members and their children in answer to 21 questions. So he raises 21 questions and he answers them and basically kind of gives a more like traditional Presbyterian type of answer it's less congregationalist and more like kind of liberal Presbyterian in a way. Not saying he was squishy, I'm saying liberal as far as understanding who was a member of the church. <laughs> So, in this essay, Mather tried to argue a biblical case for the idea that baptized children of believers themselves were considered true disciples of Jesus by means of the covenant, such as the covenant with Abraham, and therefore they were true members of the church in some way, even if their regenerate status was questionable. So you couldn't wait till the children were grown and did as their parents did to be considered members. They were members by virtue of being baptized as infants. So he wanted to expand membership to these children, even if they weren't truly regenerate, or you couldn't evaluate if they're regenerate. His main thrust was in explaining the continuity of the Old Covenant structure into the New Covenant Church. We could see that today, you know, as I've listened to a lot of debates of Baptists versus Presbyterians over the nature of the New Covenant and so on, and that theme, the same arguments that Mather made in his essay come out from a lot of the Presbyterians that I've listened to, so this is not really new or novel on his part here. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Christianpodcastcommunity.org.
one stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. So one little quote from his uh, disputation there, he says, quote, if children were once church members, and in context he's talking about Israelites under the old covenant, if children were once church members and do not continue to be church members still, as in, in the new covenant in their church, then their membership must have been repealed by the Lord, who alone could make such an alteration. And if any should affirm that the Lord hath done it, it lieth upon them to prove it, and to show when and where such an alteration was made, or such a repeal may be found." So Mather, like Presbyterians, even today, will say, "...children were proper members of the Old Covenant via circumcision." So, are you trying to say that children are not proper members of the church today? You know, so God changed that, you know, so, and baptism replaces circumcision. And so, if God made a change, you've got to prove that he changed that. So, children are now proper members of the church and of the covenant today by means of being baptized as infants. And so, therefore, they're proper members and anything that would apply to a member Maybe not in things like voting or something, but, you know, then they are proper members of the church. And so problem solved there. So as children of covenanted members were baptized, but deemed unregenerate or still not, they weren't considered regenerate. Members of these congregational churches under Mather became adults, and then they wanted their children to be baptized, and this would raise even more questions. Okay, so believers, their children are members of the covenant by means of infant baptism, but when these children who are still considered unregenerate grow up and then they present their children, can their children be baptized? Because don't you have to be a believer to be a member of the covenant? Could unbelievers have their children baptized? And so this raised questions. And So I think this part's kind of funny. It reminded me of a verse. I just found it in Titus 3 in verse 9. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Yeah, it's an interesting verse there because, yeah, not to try to fault our dear Presbyterian brethren today, but yeah, like the original Congregationalists, they at least had a partially correct idea in that the thrust is to have everyone regenerate. (laughs) At least that's what we're striving for, but to try to propagate the church organically as a matter of building the church and believing that true Christianity is passed down via birth and by just growing up in the church and participating in the covenant signs, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and so on, and then passing that down to their children, you know, like, sure, that could be a religious society, but is it really true Christianity or repassing down true Christianity if we're not making sure that everyone is regenerate (laughs) to the best? Are we evangelizing our children? Okay, so then in Titus 3, verse 5, I think this kind of gives the Christian hope because it says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. So to me, it's like, oh, it's kind of sad that these people were trying to figure out like, okay, what do we need to do here? And how do we do this? How do we figure out all these things and all these works to do? And then you look at God's word and it's like, oh, but it's not based on all that works and all those little nitpicky things that they're trying to focus on. It's what God has done for you and recognizing Mm. that and letting the Holy Spirit change you and change the inside of you. Mm. And I think that, I mean, this is kind of, to me, the exciting part of looking back at how God worked in the early centuries here in these little communities and seeing how, okay, it's not all a loss because we have people that do understand God's word and they come in and they help people understand that, okay, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's your sin that you need to ask forgiveness for and repent and have that relationship and that walk with him now. And I think it's, Mm, like some of the stuff is like oh man this seems like (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) these poor people and like Mm, i don't know it's kind of like mind-boggling how they're like trying to think through all this like oh you feel so stressed for them but then it's like you feel for them because when you're trying to think the way they're thinking you could say yeah that does seem like a tough problem to solve here and stuff you know so and what we're talking about here is like wait i don't remember all this when i'm talking about the great awakening why are you talking about this well this is the background to eventually what the great awakening was solving you know so as you said every revival has its own particular cult cultural setting and problems, but the solution through actual revival results in the same thing. It might seem like we're just emphasizing something that's unimportant, but this really is important to understanding what caused the Great Awakening. So going back to Pastor Mather, about a decade and a half after his essay, his disputation there, he was still grieved about the membership and churches declining even more. And so he concluded that children of unregenerate children of regenerate grandparents were proper members of the covenant, eligible for baptism and being considered proper members, but they were a little bit lesser members. They couldn't participate of the Lord's Supper because, you know, even Presbyterians today, they believe that infants should be baptized as covenant children, but they won't allow them to partake of the Lord's Supper unless they demonstrate, you know, that they believe the gospel, you know, as Paul says, you know, don't partake unworthily, not discerning the Lord's blood and body. So like a lot of Baptists, Orthodox Presbyterians anyway, will enforce or at least expect that you shouldn't partake unless you believe the gospel, unlike baptism where they'll give it to, you know, ignorant infants. (laughs) So Mather's position on membership there was controversial, as we expected, unlike the conservative original congregationalist tradition there. But a bunch of Congregationalist churches that then agreed with Mather's position convened a synod in 1662 to write kind of a new covenant, a document that later became known pejoratively as the Halfway Covenant. (laughs) So what was the Halfway Covenant? It was an attempt to solve the problem structurally and politically. 
So baptized children of full members could be considered halfway members, even without fulfilling the requirements of their parents. So without going through the rigor of being determined to be regenerate and giving a confession of faith, these children, these baptized children, may not have been covenant, but they just had to you know, agree to live under the structure of the orthodoxy of the church. They couldn't just blatantly disagree with it. They could participate in some matters of church government, but they couldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, eventually the question arose if these potentially unregenerate children could have their children baptized, and then we get to (laughs) Solomon Stoddard. So Solomon Stoddard is going to be an advocate of this halfway covenant, but he's going to take things even further And the next episode of Truth Espresso in this series on revival, we're going to look at Solomon Stoddard, and then we'll see, we're going to then look at what happens with the Great Awakening. But Solomon Stoddard is going to go beyond the halfway covenant and basically open up church membership to anyone who wasn't a scoundrel. Basically, hey, if you're just living a decent life as a citizen, come to church, baptize your children, participate in the Lord's Supper, and and just, hey, hopefully these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper and what they say about the gospel can be used as sacramental tools, possibly to convert these people, we hope. And so that maybe by opening church membership, making it more liberal and using the ordinances kind of sacramentally to evangelize people, this will be the way to revive the dead church and to evangelize and convert people. And so we're going to look at that and the actual great awakening in the next episode. And so stay tuned. I hope that this is interesting you in revivals in American history. And we hope that you will stay tuned to hear about Solomon Stoddard and the figures of the great awakening. And God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 